Masterminds, the podcast where we give you insights from experts to help smart mobile marketers get even smarter. This is just the third episode. For the first episode, we went to the United States. For the second, we were in Australia. And the third, we're in Europe, specifically Spain. My next guest is a mobile growth consultant for Deezer, Lingo Kids, PlaySpace, App Agent, and many more companies. He's spoken at App Growth Summit, App Promotion Summit, Mobile Growth Europe, ASO Conference, and more. And if you can sense a thread that's running through those conferences, you're on the right podcast. He's also a frequent contributor at Mobile Dev Memo and a prolific tweeter at, at @thomasbcn. He's one of the smartest people I know in user acquisition, mobile growth, and digital marketing. Thomas Petit, please say hello. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Th- thank you, John, for this uh, very nice, very nice intro. Uh, happy to participate to, to the Mobile Masterminds today um, and share a few stories. Wonderful, wonderful. So you're joining from Spain, but you're not Spanish by the sound of your voice. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I- I'm French. This is something that is really hard to hide, obviously, uh, especially like uh, on voice only. Uh, so I was born in, in France. Uh, I moved uh, I built a business there that didn't work, and just after I moved to Spain, that was about ten years ago. Um, I started like on web marketing, mostly e-commerce and, and similar. Uh, before I moved to apps, about five years ago, which some that much, but in terms of of mobile timeline, that's like I'm almost a veteran with with just five years of, of experience in the field, uh, as it's always changing and. Uh, I spent a bit. Of, I spent a few years uh, dedicating my time to one app in the health and fitness space, and I moved about uh, a bit more than a year ago um, to independence, where I I wanted to see different verticals, different stage. So I'm collaborating with about 20 apps at the moment, um, and this is very exciting and learning learning things every day. Wonderful, wonderful. I mean, living the dream, living in Spain. I mean, beautiful weather, probably still working on all the favorite apps and everything. It has to be super interesting. You're working on 20 different apps at once. That's really neat because you get a very broad sense of the industry. Uh, It's got to be challenging because you get to dive into different apps with different models and different user acquisition needs and everything like that all the time. But you must see a wide range of marketing challenges, marketing innovations, uh, user retention and acquisition strategies. Pretty interesting. Yeah, that's actually the, the main reason why I moved independent, like because I, I wanted to broaden my experience. I mean, some particular channel or audience wouldn't work for some apps, and I wanted to broaden my, my skill a little bit. It definitely is challenging in terms of mental load, like from switching to like being focused on one and then to another. Uh, but it's actually very interesting. In my particular case, I think what eases a little bit is uh, I work only non-gaming and very often for three, four particular verticals. So I do see interesting patterns between them. Um, and I mean, benchmark always have, have limits, but it gives you a pretty good sense when something is particularly good or particularly bad uh to have like this first party benchmark in my mind and to to help developers focus on on the right priorities which is very often the problem is not capability but what do we prioritize especially as i as i work with many many very early stage apps where 
resource internal resources are are very limited so it's all about prioritizing excellent excellent super interesting must be a great way to live and work so let's get into it uh we're going to talk about a a bunch of different things on this podcast we're going to talk about apps for optimization we're going to talk about the increasing complexity of mobile data we'll talk a little bit about creative optimization maybe we'll hit the duopoly which i noticed is a favorite subject of yours recently uh on twitter and some growing obstacles for indies and early stage app makers. Um, so I'm going to jump right in on app store optimization. Uh, that has been something that um, has been in tremendous of tremendous importance for for many years, obviously. And organic discovery is still really really critical for a lot of companies, especially if you have limited funding. Talk to us about what's happening there, what's kind of new there, how pay for play is coming in, and and maybe as well some of the benefits of, of getting featured. Mm-hmm. So so the thing here is I, I think the main change, if you take a, a like sort of a big picture perspective and, and not like later small change and all, is that this field moved in perception a lot. Uh, if you ask somebody like three, four, five years ago, um, the first term that would come in mind to them would be keywords. And it's true that back then it was relatively easy to actually make difference by just tweaking keywords a little bit because the competition was low. But I think that was that was from the very beginning a mistake and that mistake has been corrected in the sense that I see App Store optimization as a, as a very broad discipline that basically touches everything that happened in the store and, and here the thing is, we sometimes forget that what's very specific about the app industry is that we've got this bottleneck between any communication we might do and users experimenting our product, which is these users have to go through the stores um, with the exception of the APK on Android, but I think that's, that's sort of uh, not super significant. And so... It's all about this particular bottleneck. And I actually think that today keywords are relatively not important in the sense that Google has a very complex semantic way of of guessing what your app does regardless of what you input. But also because on on the App Store, on the iOS App Store, it's become a lot more competitive to make difference by the keywords. And I think that's great because it means this field moved to the other topics and I think the big one here is conversion optimization. So how you would change the visuals of, of your app page to trigger better conversion among the viewers. And this is actually super critical because while the other like changes only touch organic, this will apply to everything because every single click that you would pay on Facebook, Google, any other network, would actually have to pass through this page. And, and there's a pretty big drop of anywhere between 50 and 90%. So this is actually really critical for making like UA budget profitable, but also like to maximize your outcome without changing much the, the quantity of traffic. And I think a lot of attention has moved in, in ASO to conversion optimization and visuals uh, uh, in the last say two years. Um, and I think it's great, and it's to me, it's a lot more interesting than keywords, but that's my, my personal preference. I think this is the big elephant. And then you've got a lot of small things you need to factor. Uh, one is, is that there are no ads in the store, which wasn't the case uh, like three years ago. Um, focusing about how to get feature is also, in my opinion, part of, of ISO, but then it goes also to smaller topics like 
monitoring the, the weight of your app because that impacts the conversion optimization, monitoring, obviously ratings and reviews, which have always been very important. So it's sort of the, the ASO discipline is a very broad field. Uh, and, and I'm glad that uh, finally people see it this way and not like as a, as a keyword discipline because this is just a small part of it. I really like what you said there about ASO being not just about organic discovery, uh, but also being something that optimizes your efforts for paid acquisition. Um, because, yeah, they've got to get through that gate, right? And you, you pay $2, $5, $3, whatever it might be for somebody to go view that app on Google Play or the iOS App Store. If they don't like it, if it doesn't look good, if it doesn't match what you were advertising, if it just doesn't seem right for them, they won't convert and and, and those dollars uh, get flushed down the drain. Super, super it, interesting. In my personal case, it's almost like accidentally that I put the focus there because uh, so when I was working at this fitness app called, called 8Fit, uh, I started there about five years ago. So I guess it was still quite in its infancy back then. And, and I arrived and I had a fairly good knowledge about how keywords work there. So I tried to tweak them differently, different iteration, many geographies. And the truth is the, the uplift that I was getting were actually really, really small because the, the low-hanging fruits were, were already taken. And very soon, like my attention shifted because I, I noticed how a higher conversion rate was actually improving my position in the in the paid auctions. Uh, like basically in in what like in any UA network. Uh, you're only as good as the conversion from CPM to CPI or CPA now that there is event optimization. And, and people often forget that it's not only about how, how many times people will click on your creative and how good is your CTR, but actually that if your conversion rate in, is low in the store, this is like making your position in the auction unsustainable. You would have to bid a lot higher to get the same inventory. And so we iterated a lot there, uh, maybe because we're lucky to start a little bit before other players. This really gave, gave us an edge like for about two years of being able to drive cheaper quality traffic thanks to that. I would say one of the other changes in, in ASO is that nobody's dumb. So when there's something that is making the difference, people will notice very fast. And as the focus has changed there, obviously it's a lot harder to, to make the difference. But I would say you still have to invest quite a important effort there, in the sense that before you could win over the competition if you were better in this field. Now it's rather the opposite is if you don't do it, you're going to lose. So it's sort of your force to do it. But regardless why you're doing it, you have to do it anyway. Super, super interesting. Uh, talk to me a little bit about getting featured. I mean, with, with exposure to such a wide range of apps, you must have seen that multiple times. I talked to somebody on our second podcast just last week who got featured in Australia and other other uh, nations. They're, they're Aussie, so that's why they focus there. Uh, and they saw hundreds of thousands of new installs because of that. And that was on the iOS App Store as well as Google Play. Uh, what have you seen about getting featured? And we know that's changed significantly with the, uh, with the App Store as it's changed in the last year, what that looks like and how that works. What have you seen recently mm -hmm. uh, for the impact getting featured? So the, like my, my overall like experience, and I'm talking here about across many apps, so I think it's partly representative of what's happening in the store, at least for non-games, because games, games are, are fairly different, is that the impact is a lot less than what it used to be. I don't know if 
if people like tree are, are not like acting from from the featuring tabs or it's just there's more featuring but this was quite counterintuitive i actually remember a conversation we had before the store was was revamped on by apple and in the industry we all thought that featuring would get actually bigger in impact and what we've seen is that it's actually got smaller over time uh so that that's definitely a reality that doesn't mean that it's not interesting to get they're still free install there might be different people than you can target elsewhere. So I still think it's it's a extremely high valuable uh, thing to try to pursue. But because the impact is less, it's also had a, an healthy effect, which is I, I see developers being a bit less obsessed about it. And while it's great to be featured, it's also not a sustainable strategy because you're not going to have it all the time. And I don't think this is something you should rely on, but that could come a, should come as a bonus. Uh, and if it comes, great. Um, that's awesome. Uh, if it doesn't, well, keep keep working. There are some of like some tricks that help getting featured. There's no perfect recipe. There, there's one thing that like I'm, I'm, I'm in my own experience was disappointing is that when when our app was fairly small, we were a very small team. We had like it was really hard to get noticed, and we barely get featured uh, at all. But that's when we're really small. So even a smaller feature would have been like a huge win for us. And then fast forwarding a few years later, when we had a more organized team and a lot more professional about every part of the app, which obviously had better design, better UX and so on, we started getting featured and eventually got featured quite heavily uh, at some period, which really was nice. And we had more interaction with Apple team. So that was extremely valuable. But in terms of impact, it's sort of the impact came when we needed less because we would be bringing a million install on our own and then we'd get 10k install. Sort of, we could almost not see it sometimes. So I really wish that uh, Apple would put a lot of focus on small and indie apps because that's the ones that are really helped by, by it. And it also brings more variety to the store. And it's true that when you're, when you're just starting, it's hard to get noticed. And very often, your app may not be on the quality standards that Apple requires to, to fit your apps, which I also understand. I'm not saying I'm making a mistake here. It's just how the game is played, and, and that's normal. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, hey, the rich get richer. Um, it, it is super interesting that you brought up. I mean, when the major change to the App Store came in last year, uh, I thought, and many others thought, wow, they're doing significant in-depth features you're gonna get featured for a whole day you're taking up the whole screen or a big chunk of the screen and and we thought that would have a huge impact you know and and it turns out i mean in my experience of using the ios app store it it, it turns out that um I, I skip that tab entirely and i don't look at that tab and i jump right into search or or, or some of the other tabs and and generally into search because I'm searching for a specific app and maybe that's just me but but I avoid uh, that tab mostly uh, for games and for apps and and therefore I think because it's out of the regular flow of people's use of the app store uh, that's decreased uh, its effectiveness uh, interesting interesting things it was not in how Apple intended it they intended to give more impact there but uh, it seems like that's how it's worked out uh, Excellent. Let's talk about marketing, mobile marketing, user acquisition, and this increasing complexity of data. 
Um, and so we're turning away from the ASO uh, and the Google Store optimization conversation, and we're turning to this, this, this data flow that's coming in to user acquisition managers from all the partners that they got, the media sources, ad partners that they've got, and they're bringing in all this data. And talk to me about what's coming in and how it's more complex than it used to be. So I guess, I guess there's a, there are a few reasons of why it is more, more complex. Um, what, one is, if, if you look back a few years ago, the, the, like, I mean, it was always a breakthrough when you were saying that you were looking beyond the install. Like uh, five, six years ago, it was like everybody was focused on, on CPI. Obviously, the, the more you go down the funnel, the more the data becomes complex because you're looking at specific segments and you're looking at more and more, more events that are only specific to your app and are not really something that is a benchmark. And especially when you try to, when you start modelizing uh, lifetime value of your users, maybe you're using a combination of ads and IAP. Maybe you're using very complex scheme of subscription with different lengths, different value, different. Uh, also, you need to factor the currencies and so on. So it's really like the more you go down, the more there is a, a huge quantity of data, but also a more tricky way to interpret that data which very often you will need like to project early on to be usable for, for user acquisition. And in this sense, I don't really think that it is more complex than before. It's just before we weren't even looking at it. It's so if we're, we were not smart enough to understand <laughs> that this was where the, the, the economics are really happening. Maybe it was, it was a bit easier. So you would just throw in a lot of traffic and it was profitable. So we would care less. It, it become a lot more competitive. So because the like, like profitability is lower, you would focus on, on getting smarter and getting getting more and more, like the, the fruits in the tree are, are higher and higher. So you need to develop tools to go and grab them. And I think that was uh, an evolution that happened in parallel. And I, I don't remember specifically when, when I started with subscription apps, uh, there was basically no tool at all that would help us understand uh, the exact value of, of our user. It was only all averaged. And we had to rely on, on the information from, from Apple console, uh, which is really hard to use to iterate on your product because you can't really segment it the way you want. And, and I think this was a very radical change. Like here I'm mentioning subscription in particular, but it, it doesn't really matter. I think there are more tools uh, in all aspects of data management uh, because the whole flow has become more complex, profitability is less, and you need to get smarter and smarter. Uh, there are also more needs for this tool. I remember like that we wanted to buy tooling uh, a few years ago, and we couldn't because those tools didn't exist. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that there's lots of very professional tools that came out to the market, and there are a lot more consolidated sub-markets within it, like with very serious competitors, um, also challengers. Like, so it's really, really interesting to, to monitor. I just think it's because marketing got, marketers got smarter. Like, it's not because before we didn't need that data. It's basically we had no tools to use it and we had less need to look at very complex things. Uh, thing is, uh, there's no way you're going to, I mean, unless you're really, really lucky or, or your concept is so innov innovative that, that you're way ahead of everybody, which never happens, you will have to dig down very deep in, in the data. And 
it's also part of the reflection that the marketer has become a lot more of a data analyst than what, what he used to be, more of a media buyer, say before. Uh, and I think it's just a reflection of how, how the field is, is uh, like maturing and getting smarter and, and going deeper into what, what really matters. So yeah, that would be my interpretation. Basically, we're less dumb than before. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. It's pretty interesting that, you know, a couple of years ago or even longer than that, you were in the subscription space. I mean, that's obviously the hottest thing right now. Um, it, it's super, super hot right now. A lot of apps are moving to subscription revenue. There's a lot of revenue to be made there. And of course, Apple's jumping in there as well with Apple Arcade, right? Uh, so you were uh, way ahead of the curve. I just got lucky. I mean, I wasn't aiming at a at a subscription model uh, initially, but it's true that I, I, I find it myself. I mean, uh, I'm, uh, I find it myself very interesting in the way you interpret the numbers, and also because it was so different from from where the industry was at the time. It was, I mean, early, very early on, driven by premium apps I would pay in the app store, and then mix of IAP and uh, IAP and ads would be like. The norm, especially in games, uh, and the subscription, like not only because they were new and different, but also because the the problematics that come with it are actually extremely interesting in terms of renewal and all. It's true that uh, I, I mean I, I got a little bit specialized in that. I think it was accidental, but yeah, I got lucky because a little bit after things got the turn into the the hot topic. So it's obviously very useful for me today, as I see many many app developer asking me about specifics of the of the subscription based monetization um but you never know things turn pretty fast like I, I think they're here to stay for number of reasons they make sense for many businesses because google and apple wants them but you never know maybe in two three years people would be tired of having 25 subscription and and we'll see something new happening so never never take too much rest and, and always monitor what's what's becoming hot uh, in the future so that that, that that's my challenge that's great advice. I mean, uh, I, I know that there will be subscription fatigue. fatigue. I mean, um, you're certainly going to see that in the uh, streaming media uh, space, uh, especially for video, right? Disney Plus is coming out. Hulu has something. Netflix mm -hmm. has been there for a while. Apple Plus, Apple TV Plus is, is out. Um, and, and, and there's so many. How many uh, little uh, holes are you going to drill in the bottom of the bucket of your bank account <laughs> for money to drill? out on a regular basis right uh -huh. and 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 we're going to have that in apps as well but i'll ask you one question here because you've been in the space and and you're successful in the space how does app marketing how does mobile marketing change when you are focused on a subscription monetization model versus let's say an in-app purchase model so well there's definitely like differences in terms of how you interpret your your LTV but very often this work is not necessarily going to be executed by 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 a pure marketer and media buyer so that this data will be fed back to them so that would be one difference but not necessarily the the core difference i think that there are there are two like uh very big share today one being that so a lot of the platform and specifically Facebook and Google have moved from optimizing for install toward optimizing for events and uh, value-based uh, value optimization on, on Facebook and it's called uh, TROAS on, on Google. And the thing is that this, the, the value optimization model doesn't really work for subscription. 
they work really well when you have a huge variance in the revenue. So typically gaming where like a lot of the revenue is driven by only a few users has huge variance. E-commerce has also a fairly high variance. And then this optimization model makes a lot of sense. But if you're selling the same subscription to everyone, and even though you would have like a monthly and a yearly subscription, like the LTV of those different users is actually fairly similar, which renders the whole model of value optimization a bit useless. So most of the subscription business I know, they, they, are, they operate on event optimization, basically have you subscribed, yes, no, uh, which trigger another problem, uh, which is the completion of this event, and specifically in the case of, of long-term subscription, uh, most of the health and fitness space would operate on yearly subscription, also fairly common in the education space. But then your conversion rates means that it's really hard for this machine learning from Google and Facebook to optimize on if the conversion is like 2 3%. And obviously, if your price point at entry is $1, $2, it's a lot easier to get conversion rate of 10 20%. That makes this machine very efficient. When your conversion rate is like 2 3%, this is really hard. And so a lot of the industry in, in the subscription world is optimizing to free trials, um, which is both great because then you manage to make those systems work on event optimization based on the free trial, but it's also very problematic in the sense that uh, free trial doesn't, like starting a free trial does not fully correlate to LTV. And especially there are huge differences in, in cancellation rate among uh, of different age. Uh, and I've got a specific anecdote about that. Maybe I'm talking a bit long on the topic, but I've got an, uh, an anecdote. That is very no, it's great. This is awesome stuff. Keep going. I remember when Google introduced uh, UAC a few years back, and I was like, oh, sure, I'm going to train this machine to bring me more free trial. And the truth is <laughs> Google did its job in the sense that I was like, okay, I want to pay, let's say, $10 for every trial that is starting because on average I was realizing that I was making my money back this way. And eventually Google delivered. And I realized there was a problem in my data, which is I had my cost per trial exactly where I needed it. But then when I looked at this cohort mature, I realized that my return on spend was a lot lower than what I would expect. And the thing is, because I only fed very early even to, to Google, uh, what happened after is Google brought to me a lot of the user who know exactly how to cancel the subscription and specifically user under 20 years old who are a lot more savvy using the phone and getting charged. And what happened is our, the, the, the conversion between free trial and paying subscription was like completely off the chart, but by the bottom, like it was less than half of what we usually yes. had. And I think here it was my fault to assume that if I am for an average, it's going to work. And it sense that the value I gave Google, they, they, they did the job they were supposed to do. And that's where I started to think that I need to get a lot smarter about the event I'm optimizing for and to adjust to this new reality of, of event optimization. But we find a couple of tricks that, that help, but it's, it's a lot less intuitive than it might look uh, at first glance. And the, the lesson here, um, is really 
look at your cohorts. Like, don't assume that they're going to behave the way your previous cohorts do, because as soon as you've got a little bit of variance, we're actually talking about big money, big money differences. That is super interesting. I mean, uh, the lesson there is be very careful what you're optimizing for, because Google will give it to you. And if that does not result in actual revenue, you are screwed. That is a, yeah. a great insight. I mean, and, um, and and you were stuck between a hard rock and a hard place because you couldn't optimize on the variable that you really wanted to, on the KPI that you really wanted to, which was the paid conversions, because the, the volume wasn't enough there to train the algorithm, train the AI to do what you wanted it to do. Yeah. Really, really challenging. It was challenging. We actually found a, a, a few tricks here and there to, to battle this. Uh, maybe one thing we didn't do right is... If we had put a lot more money into the machine, then even a low conversion can be trained to the, like, I mean, you, you can bring, it, it doesn't really matter what's your conversion rate. If you have the, the budget to allow to send 100 or 500 events every day back to this algorithm, then it will work again. So maybe maybe we were too small, so we had to find a, a, a few smart workarounds around it. Uh, I have to admit that <laughs> it took me many months to find those that work with many failures in in. In the meantime, but uh, we found a couple of recipes that definitely helped a bit. Nice, nice. And that was, of course, one of the main uh, criticisms of UAC when it first came out is that it cost an awful lot to train that algorithm. Um, and I think they've gotten a lot better at that now. Uh, but there were many marketers who spent hundreds of thousands of dollars training that algorithm. And um, and, and once it's going, it's going. But um, uh, there, there can be a steep cliff to, to, to come over there. Uh, very, very cool. Yeah, I agree, and I don't think it's a bad thing by itself, but it, it leads us back to a topic that I, 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 I think we were going to mention a little bit later, which is it's making it really hard for, for the small guys, for the indie, for the early stage, in the sense that it really splits even further. I mean, the App Store have always been a winner-takes-all yes. model. Like, I've always been very unfair, and like 0.01% of apps would would collect more than half of revenue, and it's, it's always been like this, but it seems like all this trend, they combine to make it even more in the sense that on the UA side, you need to have a minimum volume and minimum budgets to make this machine work at, at, at their peak efficiency. We mentioned that tooling become a lot more complex and all these tools, I mean, there's a, a lot of tools out there that are really brilliant and didn't exist before, but if you have to pay like, uh, 1k a month here and 3k there and 5 here and 2% of spend on this one. I mean, if you're really big, it makes a lot of sense because you're making like a better return on that spend and this tool improve you. But if you're small, you just can't afford to pay 5 or 10 grand a month to tooling and you're doing it the old school way and obviously you are at a disadvantage. So, I mean, this is something I'm, I'm observing and I don't have a recipe against it. I'm just saying like it even reinforces the initial nature of uh, winner takes all of the store yes. is something that's becoming even even more true today even if it was already the case before yeah yeah i totally see that i mean in terms of singular obviously uh, we focus on on uh, companies um, app publishers who spend you know 4 million and up uh, annually in advertising right and and there are many yeah. customers who spend um, you know, in the tens of millions annually, and some who spend, you know, over a hundred million dollars annually, right? And and yep. that is not uh, where you enter the market if you're an indie, if you're an independent. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and very often they had the question, like I'm trying to educate people on, on what they should prepare to. And when you're going to grow, you're probably going to need tools like Singular and other, other types of tooling. And I say, okay, I understand very well where this is going later when I will be spending a few millions, but what do I do now? And I say, you do it manually. Like this is all you build it, but it's going to cost you even more in engineering time and so on. You'd rather focus on your, your product and just uh, try to get there as soon as you can to save all this time. Um, I, I don't see a lot of other recipes. But, yes, and it's really, really challenging. I mean, you probably saw the thing. I think Eric Sefer tweeted it out, and I retweeted it. Uh, it was probably last week, and it was on Reddit. And there was this app developer, indie app developer, and and he decided, you know what, I need to get, I need to not only be an app developer, I need to understand user acquisition, I need to understand mobile marketing, mm-hmm. and and he documented what he did, and there were eight sort of methodologies that he tried and different things that he did, and he documented the results of each of them. But if, if memory serves, I think he invested a few hundred dollars or maybe under 500, certainly under a thousand in each of those eight different methodologies and, and all of them kind of failed. And it was, it was a little bit sad to read. It was, it was, I was super happy, first of all, that, that he was totally public and open about what he was doing, but it was, it was a little bit sad to see, you know, the, the budget figures that he was able to put out there um, were just insufficient to do what he needed to do and to help him learn at the rate that he needed to learn in order to become one of those high yeah. growth. Yeah, no, absolutely. I read this article and it was really nice to see like the transparency, but also fresh tone of somebody discovering a field that I, I, I'm in. And it seemed the guy was actually pretty smart and was learning on it. But it, it's what you said, like there, there's a minimum amount that you need to actually trigger the optimization. It's really, really hard to move uh, with with tiny budgets. Uh, it's also really hard to get help because most agencies, consultants, whatever help you can find is actually going to need minimum amounts to help you to like make it worth it for their own resources. So it's really hard to be in this position. Uh, I do try to dedicate my time, uh, some time, some of my time, like to to help people in this case and try to avoid some of the mistakes. I think this guy took took a right approach, but sometimes go, going with just a little budget is really making it impossible, like uh, entirely. It's it's just a sad reality that is is good to yes. know before you start start spending money. But uh, it's not uncommon. I've seen I've seen it elsewhere. But it was nice to to see it on the open uh, publicly. So definitely a recommend read. I've read it on Gamma Sutra, but I, I don't know. Maybe it was a repost. Right, 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 right. I think you're probably right. I think it was Gamma Sutra, not not Reddit. But uh, thank you for that. Um, let's let's Might jump back both. then. Excellent. Let's jump back then and talk a little bit about creative optimization. You tweeted out something, I think it was a week ago, something like that about Miri Growth. And they did a Uh study, uh, 3,000 ads for 30 apps. And and your conclusion from reading what they had done and what they looked at, they went in some depth. You you Google that if you're listening, Miri Growth uh, study, 3,000 ads for for 30 apps. Uh, your conclusion was creative was the main differentiator. Uh, that's super interesting to me because I've done some research on that as well. And it seems like creative is a huge differentiator and, and sometimes um, more important than any other factor. In fact, I, every time that I've seen more important than any other factor. Can you talk about that a little bit uh, and, and what you saw in that study? What what made you state, say that? Sure. Like, I mean, 
it's it's sort of I, I, this article was, was really interesting and also the transparency of of an agency sharing their success and failure and so thank to the team for that uh, and to Adam who sent me the, the article. The thing is, it, it, it's uh, even a broader trend and not just an observation that I made based on, on this, where like, it, it's like uh, I, I had this slide that I showed publicly, I say, uh, we're back to the madman. It's sort of like the old <laughs> cool way of looking at marketing that would be all about uh, the concept of the campaign and not so much about its execution. And we went the complete other way uh, a few years back where it was all about the numbers and well, whatever the creative, we don't really care. And it's sort of we reached the middle point, uh, understanding that we need that, that the work of a marketer is basically uniting the data and uh, a brilliant creative concept. Um, so it's sort of like there's a trend behind it. Uh, I, I think my tweet was a little bit extreme because I said, Creative is the only differential in UA, and obviously it's not the only one. I wanted to be a bit provocative so that uh, people would react on it. <laughs> that worked really well because then I've got a couple of friends from agency that are like, "No, it's not true. There's a lot of knowledge and all." But it is true. Like you, you need you need solid foundation before you get there. But then you reach a point where the creative is really where the big wins are going to be made uh, because the other one. Either they vanished with like uh, the change in network and specifically with event optimization and and value-based optimization where the targeting is a little bit less, uh, is a lot, either it's less important because you need bigger samples to train the machine or you can't access it at all. Like in the case of UAC, which in all cases was, was doomed to happen because of the change in, in privacy that users are, are now demanding. But it's been a, it's been a challenge for, for marketers to completely switch like their, their mindset from having hundreds and hundreds of micro-targeting into, okay, I'm going to give the keys to the machine and let it work just because it's better than myself, which basically leaves you with two major levers on the marketing side is which data and which event am I feeding back to the machine, which we discussed briefly before, and which creative am I actually showing to user, which is the, the place where the big differences are made. Like, and here by the creative, I, I want to repeat something we said before. So it's obviously a lot on the ad creative, but don't forget about the store page, which is actually an extremely hard creative to tweak because the ad, you're probably going to be able to show relevant ads to people Maybe you're going to split them by gender or by type of audience, and then you can cater to each audience a slightly different USP. But all of these people are going to go through the same landing page in the store, uh, which makes it really hard. You, you really need to nail the creative in the store so that all these different audiences would find relevancy. So it's the, the creative is like twofold in this case, sometimes even threefold if you have a landing page in, in between, which I'm seeing growing. So definitely that's where the, the work uh, should be focused on in, uh, in the marketer's life today. And, and I think it's really, really hard because we ask marketers to be so hard, like data-driven and excellent at number crunching, dealing with huge number of metrics, complex funnels, and so on that we tend to hire very analytical people 
And then we try to have these analytical people be also creative. And in my experience, these two things tend to be rare to find in, in one person. Like the most creative people are a bit less analytical and the most analytical are less creative. So you really need to build a team that have these two sides. And particularly like transforming data into insights that, that are understandable and actionable for designer and creative mind is a talent that is rare to find in the market and and very very sought for for and looked for great insights great insights and the pendulum swings and it swings and it swings and it keeps swinging and it keeps changing yeah wonderful but that's what makes it interesting too, you know. We 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 all are in this space also because it's moving fast, so we can't really complain when there are big changes. It's like, ah, it's not like before. Yeah, that's the nature <laughs> of this work. So you you accept it or you change the field. Like yesterday's reality is is, is very rarely next year reality in this field. So you just have to keep moving. Yes, indeed, we live in the future. Excellent. Let's move to our last topic, which is the duopoly. Uh, this has been a very interesting past year uh, for both Facebook and Google, and frankly, for big tech in general. Uh, I think Europe has been a bit ahead of the United States specifically in this, but we, I think with the uh, new election coming up in the United States and certainly where uh, the Democratic uh, candidates for presidency are concerned, big tech is definitely on the horizon as something that they're looking at very, very carefully in terms of antitrust, in terms of power to... Uh, um, move public opinion in terms of uh, using their their power in, in in and abusing their power in some ways. Uh, so we we look at um, the ad tech space and we look at ad networks in general and we see Facebook and Google are huge. We see a bunch of other sort of a uh, little bit lower tier. Uh, challengers, maybe the Apples, maybe Snapchat, maybe Twitter, uh, maybe others like that, Pinterest and other things like that, right? And then we see thousands of other ad networks out there. Talk to me a little bit about some of the current challenges and problems with the, duo with the duopoly and, and how you see advertising and marketing evolving over the next couple of years. So there's a very interesting uh, perspective about this, which is it really depends through which lens you're looking at it. And it's true that one, one, one side of the story is using at, like looking at how a privacy and user data. So obviously, users are like, oh, no, I don't want my data to be sold. But at the same time, they also want to see relevant ads and they also keep using this product. And I think here... That's sort of the wrong discussion in terms of, of marketing uh, in, in the sense that, like, if you look at the scandals, like uh, the Cambridge Analytica scandal or all the recent discussions about the flaws in YouTube algorithm, that's actually not very re a relevant conversation to have with, like, marketers. And I don't think it, it's really uh, something that is super critical in the, in the ad tech conversation that there is today. And there are completely different, like, point of view on this. So maybe U.S. Uh, like like commissions will look at oh, but how are the news filtered between uh, Republican and Democratic coverage in Google News, which is also not particularly relevant for advertiser. And then you've got a whole completely different uh, side of the story when you look at it from a marketer perspective, which 
I, I wish I, I wish I wouldn't not say that myself, and, and you know my position on this. But the the fact that Google and Facebook has grown so big is actually a marvel for marketers. But it means less headache, less partners, like uh, easier like easier management, and it's actually been great. I, I remember also reading Eric uh, write on this that without Google and Facebook growing so big. And in particular, growing so big in terms of of market share in the in the online advertising market, it's very likely that apps would not have skyrocketed the way they did. Like they were an enabler to the industry in the sense that they made everything a lot easier to scale, uh, which is not it is less true in the web space. But the concentration in the app space is so extreme. It's basically, if you can't make Google and Facebook work for you, it's going to be extremely hard to get to the to the very top. But at the same time, those tools, they're the same for everybody. Um, so it also here gives a little bit of space for independent to actually have the same capability to 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 advertise. And so it's 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 super interesting to see how users, politics and marketers are looking at this topic through completely different lenses. Um, and, and, and I like to look at it from, I mean, political aside, but like from a user and from a marketer perspective, I have this, this contradiction inside me as a marketer. I want the most data possible. As a user, I don't necessarily want this data to, to like be, be spread out everywhere. So it's sort of like this this inside problem that most marketers should have. And in a way, like there's a lot of controversy, but there's a lot of sort of contradiction in this debate. Like at the end of the day, just like we saw that GDPR ended up benefiting Google and Facebook dominance because they were the the ones who could really easily deploy the resources to adjust and so on but also because it made the wall garden even more defendable. Like you go out there today and Google and Facebook stance on privacy would be, oh yeah, we know everything about you, but we're going to keep it for ourselves. We don't tell anyone. Actually, we don't even know ourselves because it's some super <laughs> AI behind that we don't even know how it's working. Like nobody is looking at your data, which in a way is true. <laughs> like this, this data is not like analyzed by people to exploit your weaknesses and stuff but at the same time it means that it reinforced the modes that are already pre-existing and that a new challenger coming to the market today to to like to compete against google and facebook will have it really hard because it's a lot more complex to gather the scale of data and the depth of data uh, today than they did in their time when things were a little bit more open so it's sort of an interesting uh, like internal contradiction here in the sense that, yeah, maybe my data is actually better protected inside the wall garden than outside of it. But then is it also good for society as a whole and for advertisers in general to have two actors that gather, let's say, two thirds or three quarters of the market? I actually like a bit of, of diversity myself, but uh, mm -hmm. it, it's very hard to mix like the privacy demands with uh, some freedom in the market. And, I don't really know how this is going to evolve. I can't see Facebook and Google uh, really losing a lot of steam in the in the near future. Uh, but the midterm future is, I think, quite interesting to, to look at because uh, there's still a bit of uncertainty there. That's a super interesting perspective. I mean, uh, at, the, at one and the same time, 
the duopoly is an aggregation factor for supply. It's an aggregation factor for uh, demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an aggregation factor for for advertising, obviously, uh, and and the data that's required for that. But it's also an aggregation factor for regulation, and you can apply regulation on two players much easier than on a thousand and they're more regulatable in that sense although getting it through legal challenges and everything can be challenges it can be it can be difficult but they're more regulatable in that sense than ten thousand companies out very interesting absolutely i agree with that and I'll, i'll make a parallel that i don't know how relevant it is but if you look at how facebook specifically is dealing with attribution data what they always done is actually enable only a handful of companies to access the the treasure and to pass it by back to developers so and, and they maintain like a number of mmp who have access to this marketing api anywhere between 5 and 10 at all time if it was more than 10 and if any developer would be able to tap into this api i think it would be a nightmare for them to monitor and and without the bad player who is abusing the data and so on by by focusing on just a few players, they can. It's a lot easier for them, like to provide support, to provide improvement, and so on. But at the same time, they've been smart enough to not make this number too small. And I think if there was only two actors in the MMP space, then there would be a real problem of of abusive pricing and abusive dominance. So in this sense, Facebook has been really smart in always letting like five to ten and. If two would merge, they would give access to another one just to maintain some balance. And I wish that on the long term, it's what's going to happen in, in, in other fields. Like I'm all in to have not a thousand, but maybe three, four, five providers uh, for videos and a couple of YouTube competitors, same for social. You, you don't want to have a million apps there, but I think it's, it's healthy to have like a, a few different players to keep innovation level high and to keep price down and to keep like uh, uh, things a, a little bit more more balanced. But may, maybe I'm starting to be political myself, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thomas, I just have to thank you uh, for spending this hour, almost an hour now, uh, with me. This has been insightful. This has been interesting. Uh, this has been eye-opening. Uh, it's been and it's been a real pleasure. Uh, and you've done it all on a Friday night in Spain. Uh, it, it's Friday morning for me. Uh, it's Friday night for you. I know this is Europe. You're supposed to be off early and, and having a great weekend. Uh, thank you so much for <laughs> taking the time. Um, uh, I've got a full day of work ahead of me uh, still, if that makes you feel any better. Uh, but I want to thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, no worries. That that was my pleasure. As an independent, I don't have strict uh, time to work. And, and it's not unusual to have to uh, like partners in the States. So I, I'm very used to it. And it, it was a... A complete pleasure to participate with you today and, and have this little chat. I hope the listeners will, will enjoy it. And I invite them to react on my provocation and co- show me facts to counter it. Uh, and the debate will probably be beneficial to all of us. Wonderful.